You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. We're going to be in Luke chapter 13, verses, uh, verses 1 through 9. Let me read. There was some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. And he came seeking fruit on it. And he found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree. And I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir. Let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Let's pray. Pray before I go any further. Father, when we're gathered here this evening, it's cold, it's blustery, and it's wet outside, and we know that there's snow coming in the middle of the night tonight. I know for many of us, we kind of walk in the room after just a long, almost gloomy and cloudy day. And we come we come to hear from your word, Lord God. We come to be encouraged and to be, and to be fed and to be challenged. Or we come to learn about you. We come to have our hearts transformed and come to have our eyes opened. We come to have our minds transformed, our minds changed. We come to have our lives just met by you. And so, God, I just pray, Lord, that you would just be even more present in these moments as we look to your word. I pray, God, that you would just be present among us and that you would speak to us. And as we kind of dive into chapter 13 of the Gospel of Luke, as we learn more about you, Jesus, and the message that you came to preach to many, and as we come to observe you as you make your way to Jerusalem and to the cross, and as we think of even just this season of life for, 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 for all of us, this holiday season where we begin to celebrate Christmas and your coming, help us to grapple with your words. Help us to grapple with your very direct and very straightforward words in regards to what it means to repent. <clears throat> Lord, I pray that tonight that this, that this message would just really serve as an invitation to us into the gospel. Lord, that this message and that this text would just serve as an invitation for our hearts to just kind of meet you. That this, this text and this message would just serve as an invitation for us to just kind of step aside, to pull aside to the, maybe the side of the road for a moment, to gaze upon you and to think about you and to be transformed in your presence. Lord, help us to pull away from the things of life which seek to distract us or seek to discourage us or seek to bring fear into our lives. Help us to just be with you to receive an invitation to walk with you, 
I just pray those things. I pray from my heart and from my mind, Lord, that you would just focus my mind, that you would just speak through me over the next few moments. Pray, God, that they would be your words, not just mine. In Jesus' name. And everybody said? Amen. So the question on the screen for, for all of us to just kind of wrestle with as we look at this text is this. Like how should we think, uh, feel, uh, and what should we do even as a community, right? Let's just wrestle this. As a community of individuals, what should we think, how should we feel, and how should we respond or react? What should we do when horrific atrocities, tragic accidents happen? When we look at the world around us and we look at the events of the world and maybe the, the course of the way that the world is going around us, how should we think? How should we feel? How should we behave? How should we live? How do we respond? What should we do? Do we build bomb shelters, crawl them, and hide from the world? Stand on street corners with bullhorns, right? So everybody, pit, or you're going to hell. Maybe we should do that. I don't buy that idea necessarily either. I think we've all experienced enough in life to see horrific things happen. Right? We've, we've just recently experienced terrorist attacks in Paris. We've recently experienced these horrific shootings on campuses where young kids and where young uh, college-age students have been just blown away for no apparent reason. Right? And I think in these moments when this happens, we, we have a tendency as a people, I mean, I don't know about you guys, but for me, like when I see these happen, these things happen, I have a tendency to kind of sit back and say, God, why did this happen? What's the purpose of this? Like, where are you at in the middle of this? Have you, have you left us? I have a tendency to even just kind of cry out to the Lord, like in those moments, like for his patience, for his peace to come. But I think the biggest thing I wrestle with is like, what is the purpose of some of these hard things that happen? Like if God is such a good God, then why does he allow bad things to happen, right? We, we all wrestle with this question. And I think no matter how much we study, no matter how much we read in God's word, no matter how much we spend time in the gospel community, no matter how many books we read, I think, I think no matter how many times we try to put answers to that question, why does God allow bad things to happen if he's such a good God? I think we still wrestle with it, don't we? Don't we wrestle to believe and to trust in those moments that God is really good? And then we begin to wrestle like with What's the purpose? When we see tragic accidents happen around the world as well, like tsunamis, tornadoes. It's not just that we see people senselessly being murdered. It's not just that we see senseless acts of atrocities and horrific things and terrifying things all over the news. Man, like honestly, if you turn on the news and you watch it, I just challenge you guys, like, pull yourself away from being, like, drawn in by everything that that news broadcast and that station is saying. And just notice, like, all the banners, all the floating words, all the subtitles, and just notice how much fear is in there. Notice how much fear is in the language of what we see on our TVs, talking about what's happening in the world around us. It's not just that, but it's also the fact that we see tragic accidents, right? Remember a few years back, um, some friends of mine um, were, were, had been pregnant 
with their first child. And I remember our staff team um, was in our staff meeting that day, and we had prayed for them um, as they were going into surgery to have a C-section. And I remember getting the phone call that, that we all thought was going to be our friend saying, man, it's a brand new baby boy, a brand new baby girl. And it was a phone call to simply say that they had lost their baby and given birth to a stillborn baby. And I just remember the hurt and like the, the pain of this tragic accident for them. I mean, like for us, we hadn't experienced that as intimately or as closely as they had, but to experience just the, the pain in their lives and the pain on their faces and then to walk through even that funeral with them was really difficult. I remember uh, another uh, just real tragic accident. I, I had stopped and um, was visiting with a, a couple, a young couple who had a, I think it was nine-month-old uh, baby daughter. And um, she'd been sick and she'd been in the hospital. I remember stopping at the hospital and praying for them. And then and I was headed to Omaha. And I'd come back and had stopped by there again. Baby was doing a lot better. Taking her off the ventilator. Um, you know, no more oxygen or anything like that. And baby was doing a, a ton better. Balloons in there and praying for them. And then going home that evening and falling asleep. And, and my phone had died, if I remember right. And then I got a phone call in the middle of the night from somebody from our church um, saying that this baby had just died. And I remember going there, and I remember, I remember showing up there in the middle of the night, and I remember the mom and the dad, um, terrified. Just terrified by the brokenness of this tragic accident, right? Uh, and I remember just sitting with them and just crying with them and just listening to them and, and hearing just kind of their broken hearts. And I remember them asking, is God judging us because of our sin? Is God judging us because we've lived wrongly? And I remember just trying to comfort them and just telling them, I don't know. Like, I don't know what the purpose is for this. And I think all of us, if we're honest, we struggle in these seasons and in these events and these situations, right? And I think on the flip side of that, if we're going to like draw it even closer to the text and what's happening in the text, we need to remember that Jesus has been preaching a message to a crowd, right? We remember uh, back close uh, in the beginning of chapter 12, I think it was chapter 12, verse 1, which says that many thousands of people were gathered together, right? This is a large gathering, a large group of people. Now we're getting into chapter 13. All throughout chapter 12, Jesus has been preaching a message to his disciples and to this large group of possibly thousands of people. And as he's preaching, as he's teaching, he's been talking about different things. He's been talking about keeping our eyes open for, for his return. That he's going to be going away sooner than be coming back. He's been talking about what it looks like to be ready for him to come back, right? He's been also talking about what it looks like to be people who make choices. To understand that right now is the time to choose to follow him. And then out of those types of messages, what happens is somebody in the audience raises their hands and they're kind of like, oh, thanks, Jesus. Like, thanks for sharing this message of the gospel and this, these urgent messages. Thanks for preaching to us. Uh, but in light of all these things that you're talking about, what about this over here? What about this really horrific thing that has happened? What about Pilate, the way that he is murdered? All these people inside of a temple and their blood has flown in with the sacrifices. What, what about that, Jesus? What, I think what they're asking is, preaching an evangelistic message, asking us to follow you. What about all these bad things we see in the world? 
Somebody in the audience was obviously very distracted. The thing about this is this. If we look at the theme of this text, there's two things that Jesus says twice. Repent or perish. And we know that when Jesus says something twice and when scriptures repeat something, we should pay attention. It's important. The topic of repentance is, is kind of an issue for us. We, we don't like to talk about repentance necessarily because I think for us we have a tendency to get uh, confused on what repentance really is. Sometimes we think that repentance is merely confession. Like we, we go to a friend, we confess our sins, and we say we repented. We feel bad because we've sinned. We feel bad because we've made mistakes. We feel bad because we've done wrong. And we think that because we feel sorrowful, that somehow that's repentance. And I think what happens is we sometimes get a little bit confused. So I think that's partially why we don't necessarily like the topic of repentance. I also think repentance itself is just hard. I mean, the literal meaning of repentance is to turn. It's a U-turn. It's hard to tell people that that maybe we need to make a lot of U-turns in life. It's not just one U-turn, but it's multiple U-turns. It's it's continually U-turning on the road of life. One statement that I uh, I remember from our Porterbrook studies is this: is that there can be no true salvation without there can be no true salvation without true repentance, without authentic, true, real continued repentance there is no authentic salvation you can hear the message you can read your bibles you can hate out in gospel community you can be here tonight you can sing songs you can clap your hands you can, you can raise your hands you can pray prayers none of those things saves you only jesus saves you and if jesus has saved you then the fruit of his saving you is continued repentance but the other problem for us, I think, when we think about repentance is this. That sometimes we see repentance as a destination that we want to arrive at. We are very much A to B to C to steps out people. We want to make our steps. We want to get there, right? We can be very impatient about this. So oftentimes when it comes to the topic of repentance, rather than seeing repentance as a continued process of growth and change, this is where sanctification and cleansing comes into it. Instead of seeing that, we tend to see it as a destination. And then what happens is we, then we don't reach the destination that we want to get to. That, that picture in our mind's eye of what we should be like if we're actually Christian. When we don't get there, we get discouraged. We fall into self-pity. right? Or if, we, if we're making good tracks towards what we think might look good, then we begin to get prideful, a little bit arrogant. We begin to look down our nose at other people because they're not keeping up, right? They haven't made the same track that we're making. They're not headed the same direction. We're heading at the same pace. So we just struggle, I think, on both ends of this topic of repentance. And, and here's the deal. Like, as I dive into this text a little bit more, as we begin to unpack it, let me just say there's no way that in the next 30 minutes or so that, that we could even do justice to an exhaustive topic of repentance. Like Wayne Gruden wrote a book called Systematic Theology, which is yay thick. Guys like Brandon and I, who are like theology geeks and theology nerds, like we love reading those books. But the reality is a really large portion of that book is devoted to the topic of repentance. You could do, uh, you could do a 52-week-long series on the topic of repentance and still probably barely scratch the surface in terms of what Scripture said. 
So I just want to kind of warn us up front that as we look at what repentance looks like, and as we look at these different themes of, of being invited to repent by Jesus, uh, let me just say that we're, we're not going to get an exhaustive and a complete look at that. But there are three basic things in the text that I think do kind of point us in this direction of repentance. I mean, have you ever gotten an invitation to a party that you really wanted to go to? Or didn't get that invitation to the party that you really wanted to go to? I think what Jesus is doing in this text is he's giving us an invitation into the gospel. He's giving us an invitation to repent. And in fact, he's giving us a couple of invitations. And the first one that I notice in this text is in verse 1. But before we go there, I want to read you this, uh, this quote from George Whitfield. It should be on the screen. George Whitfield, when he's commenting on this text, when he's commenting on the topic of repentance, says this. says, every man by his own natural will hates God. Grapple with that for a minute. Every man by his own natural will hates God. You might be sitting here, you might be wanting to argue with me for a minute. No, I love God. No, I've loved God since I was born. No, no, you haven't. No, you and I, we have hated God. We might say we like the concept of God. We might say we like, especially God around this time of year because it's kind of like Santa Claus, gives me whatever I want. The reality is that by the way that we have lived, by the way that we have thought, just by the simple desires of our hearts, we have, we have hated God. By our own natural will hates God. But when he is turned unto the Lord, when he is turned, when he repents, you turns. When he is turned unto the Lord by evangelical repentance, then his will is changed. Our wills must be changed. This is the, this is the issue. Our will is, is in bondage. I want you to think about this for a moment. When you think about the, the, the corrupting nature and the, the divisive nature of sin, sin is alluring. It's so hard to get away from, right? It's like you're in prison. Like you've got chains on. Like you've got shackles on. This is our will. What we desire the most, typically, is not what God wants when we are not redeemed, when we are not saved, when we have not repented and believed the gospel. Our will is changed when repentance happens. Then your conscience, nor hardened or benumbed, meaning that when your conscience is not hardened or numb anymore, we will be quickened and awakened. The next half of the statement says this, Then your hard hearts shall be melted, and your unruly affections shall be crucified. Thus, by that repentance, the whole soul will be changed. You will have new inclinations, new desires, and new habits. The concept of repentance is that we would turn from our old inclinations, our old ways of thinking, our old desires, our old habits, and our old thinking into a completely new way of life. See, primarily we have preached messages in America in the church that you should come to Jesus and your life will be radically changed. And it's true that your life will be radically changed, but we have a, have a tendency as consumers to hear this message of the gospel as though we will get everything we ever wanted. The reality with repentance is that when you come to Jesus and you begin to follow him and you begin to exhibit true repentance, you're actually saying no to all the things you've always wanted. If you were to really examine my life, here's what you would find. Here's the things I really want. 
my old life. And if you think that, that somehow the moment that I started following Jesus, all of this just immediately changed, and you, you are deceived. My old life was characterized by, by multiple different women. So that I could like serve my own uh, kind of a, a self-expressive uh, um, nature. So I would use women, right? Community for me was not based upon coming together and like repenting together, believing the gospel, trusting in God, leaning on one another. Community for me was just another group of people that I could use to get my ends and my needs. Um, I've walked through some pain in my life, right? Like a lot of us have experienced some really tragic things, some real horrific things. And, and I think for me, my old life was characterized by uh, self-medicating, right? Drugs and alcohol to kind of numb the pain. These were the ways that I used to walk. I said yes to Jesus, began to follow him, and begin this road of repentance. And I remember early on thinking, man, from now on, I'm not going to lust anymore. Like, pornography is not going to get my attention anymore, right? That girl who just walked by, just dressing appropriately, not going to get my attention anymore. I got eyes for my wife only. I remember thinking, like, I'm not going to be tempted to smoke weed anymore so I can just get high, get baked, lay on my couch, eat Cheetos, and escape the pain of life anymore. Here's the problem. The problem was that destination was much further out than I thought it should be. And so I began to go through seasons of discouragement because the desire is deep inside of me. And I still wanted those things. Anybody can, can anybody say amen to like just struggling with desires? So, so I'm not the only one in the room, right? And so I think what happens for many of us is that we begin to look at this, this picture of repentance as though it's going to happen now. And there, there is truth that the, that the will must change. The desires must begin to change. Let me just tell you that, that if you desire Jesus, if you desire to see those things change in your life, like you can be encouraged in these moments, right? Because those desires don't come, I believe, without the Holy Spirit placing them there in the first place. So look at verse 1. We're going to look at these three invitations. There's three basic invitations in our text. Invitation number one is this. It's to engage community of repentance. To engage a community of repentance. And I believe that, that our misunderstanding and like our struggle in regards to repentance is like one of the primary reasons that we see a lack of change in entire families and individuals' lives. It's too easy for us to say, hey, I'm saved. I'm a Christian. It's kind of my personal journey. My personal walk, like it's really nobody else's business. I just kind of do my thing, you do yours. This is a Western mindset that has, does not find itself in the scriptures. Because in the scriptures we see entire communities gathering together. And what happens is in, in, our, in our journey of attempting to repent, if we stay outside of community, or if we just like handpick our community, like I'll take that guy and be in communion with him because you know, he just kind of makes me feel good, right? Like, I don't want to be involved in community with maybe this guy over here because he challenges me too much. If I begin to kind of pick and choose that kind of relativistic side of that consumer side of us that's there, then what happens is I build my own community of people to look just like me and nobody ever challenges me, right? 
So what happens is we wind up going this thing alone. This is why community is important when it comes to repentance. Look at, look at chapter 1, or, or chapter 12. Look at verse 1, chapter 12. Many thousands of people gathered together, right? I mentioned that earlier. And then as we come into uh, chapter 13, verse 1, we notice that there were some present at that very time who told them about the Galileans. In other words, there are like a ton of people gathered there in community. And the way that Jesus is having this conversation is in and among a group of people. This isn't just some people on the side of the road talking to themselves. What he does is he uses... Uh, he uses this moment and this question kind of as a transition, a transition away from teaching about like hypocrisy, coming judgment, the second coming, the time to choose, all those things. He uses this as a moment to kind of switch gears and talk about repentance. It's not just a personal journey. It's something that happens in community. It's something that Jesus is doing in and amongst a group of people. So I just think that in the context of what we're looking at, we're looking at a communal conversation about repentance. So I think invitation number one is to be a part of a community of repentance. That's invitation number one. How does this invitation kind of spur us on to gospel growth in our own lives? What is your level of commitment to growing in repentance within gospel community? What does that look like for you? I know many of you here are engaged in gospel community and you're having those conversations. I know there's some of you that desire to and right now there's not a group for you. So if that's you, don't feel beat up. Because I I know, like, like we're working at that. I know some of you are just working really long hours, right? (laughs) And you want to be there and you just can't be there. But I know there are some of you here in the room that you have an active resistance deep down inside against being a part of gospel community. And let me just say, I'm, I'm not here to like just push you really hard over a cliff. I don't want you to hear impatience or any of that. What I want you to hear, I think, is the call of God in your life to be actively engaged in gospel community, which is characterized by repentance. This is a desire that I believe God would give you if you're following Him. I realize we have extroverts and we have introverts in the room as well. And so I realize as introverts, and, and I, I have a highly introverted side of myself, I just want to sit in a corner and read a book. And I don't want to talk to anybody else. And so I realize sometimes as personalities, we have that kind of warring against us as well. So my hope and my prayer is that God would move all of us, regardless of personality, into a place where we would find that deep space and place of community that is characterized by repentance. Don't just think about this. How could this community, how could our community outside even these walls be impacted by smaller communities within our church that are deeply committed to gospel community that is characterized by repentance. Actively turning, actively changing, actively following Jesus, actively seeing our desires change, our thinking change, and our lifestyle change. How how could that rock the city around us? If this was not just merely a show that you came to on Sunday nights and consumed yet another product you actually engaged in the community of Jesus that was characterized by repentance. What would that look like if you were the one that kind of lifted that banner and said, hey, you know what? In this conversation and in this community, I'm not sure we're that characterized by repentance. And I think we ought to go a little deeper. What if that was you that raised that banner? Maybe in your study, your 
gospel community and your relationships? What if God just kind of raised that banner for you right now, like in, in your heart? My question for us too is this, like, like uh, sometimes I think we have a tendency to kind of let fear or busyness or just flat out laziness just get in the way of responding to this kind of invitation. My hope is that Jesus would just speak to all of us tonight on this topic. And invitation number two is this. Invitation number two, as we kind of move away from this picture of community, as Jesus says this conversation, is to engage horrific atrocities, tragic accidents, as opportunities to repent. What if we saw those two things as opportunities to repent? For me, oftentimes when I think of horrific things that happen, and when I think of these really tragic accidents, that's not my first thought. I already explained. My first thought is, God, why did you let this happen? If you're so good, why did you let these bad things happen, right? Oftentimes when I read those things in the newspaper, I see them on the news. Like my tendency is to kind of go into Rambo mode, start, start loading up the guns, right? I'm going to go find me some bad dudes to, to, to kill, to take out. Like I start going to John Wayne mode, like put my six guns on my hip, put my cowboy hat on, walk out in the street, take care of the bad guys who are out there hurting people. That's some of my first tendencies as well, right? But what if we could just see some of these horrific atrocities around the world as an opportunity for us just to repent personally? If you look at verses 1 through 5, we understand the last thing that Jesus taught his followers in chapter 12 was that it's time to choose, right? Time to choose to settle the score with God. Time to choose to trust Jesus. Time to choose to trust the gospel. And now out of that teaching, there's some people in the gathered community around Jesus who are responding to all of his evangelical invitations by, by telling him about these Galileans. The Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Apparently, Pilate, who was the ruler of that area, had sent soldiers into the temple in Jerusalem. And what he had done is he had actually ruthlessly murdered this group of Galileans while they were worshiping by offering sacrifices. And what happened was when Pilate sent these, uh, these soldiers in and had murdered them inside their church, basically it caused their blood to run with the sacrifices that was there. Can you imagine the horror of what this would be like for us? We've already even heard stories of a dude that went into a church recently sat down in the prayer meeting and in the midst of that prayer meeting stood up with a gun and shot every pastor in the room. So we've seen things like this happen. But I want you to bring this home. I want you to imagine that if we were under the regime of a, of a terrorist occupancy, you could say. Let's just say that America was occupied by terrorists at this moment and we were under their authority. This is the way it was for these people in this time. And we're under the authority of Rome. And I want you to just imagine that in these moments, as I'm preaching, they come in here with AKs, they blow us all the way, and our blood gets mingled with the communion. And then we see that on the news tomorrow. This is what's taking place in this text as they are talking. You imagine the horror of what that would be like. What was happening is that this horrific atrocity was causing these people in Jesus' audience to like, question the purpose of such an event. And this then prompts Jesus to respond this way. He responds in kind of that question and answer format that we love about Jesus. Do you think, he says, 
Do you think that, that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? Jesus answers his own question. He says, no. If he wouldn't have answered his own question, the people in the audience would have said, yeah, yeah, we do think those Galileans are worse sinners. That would have been the answer. Jesus answers his own question. He says, no, no. I'll tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Most of Jesus' audience would have had kind of the same theological framework for suffering, for horrific events, as Job's friends in the Old Testament. You think of Job in the Old Testament? When we learn from that story that Satan goes, stands in front of God and says, Hey, God, if you let me bring a ton of horrific tragedy, atrocity on Job's family, he will curse you. God's like, No, he won't. Here's what you can do. The book of Job, it's, I don't have enough time to go all the way into it, but you see in the book of Job this, this picture of God's sovereignty. His allowing suffering and hardship to come in to someone's life. Not because they deserved it. Not because they were deeply sinful. Because it would bring glory to Him. But most of the people in this day had this thought, this tendency to think that when horrific atrocity happened, that it was happening because there was a ton of sin deep down inside of these other people. Essentially what they were saying was, what about these Galileans? Weren't they super sinful? Isn't that why this happened? Isn't that why Pilate was allowed to commit this atrocious act against them? And Jesus is like, no, that's not the issue here. He says, the issue is this. That the reality is that for all of us, death comes. Every one of us. Death is coming. And the reality is that something worse than death could be experienced unless we repent. If we do not repent, death is just a doorway. If we do not repent, we have an eternity to be worried about. It's literally extending an invitation to all of us to engage these horrific atrocities as opportunities to repent personally. Jesus also invites us to think differently, not just about horrific atrocities, but also about tragic accidents that happen in our lives. He says it this way. He says, man, what about those 18? What about those 18? Like you guys are telling me about the Galileans who were murdered senselessly. What about those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them? Right. Do you think any question and answer format? Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No. I'll tell you, unless you repent, you all will likewise perish. Again, Jesus points to something very horrific and tragic as an invitation to repent. But this time, it's not necessarily just an atrocious thing. It's actually an accidental thing that has happened in Jerusalem. Tower fell over, killed 18 people. I just almost imagine that there could have been people in this audience that A, not only knew people to some of the Galileans that were murdered before, but also might have known some of these 18 that were killed in this accident. And I think what Jesus is doing is he's using these two incidents to simply say, this is an invitation for you to come and repent. How does this invitation spur us on towards growth in the gospel? What is your response when you witness horrific atrocities committed that results in the devastation of human life? Like, is your anger kindled against those who are responsible? Do you feel afraid? 
Do you, do you feel indignant like, man, how dare they do that? Or how could God let this happen? Or what if you and I could see these events as opportunities to just evaluate our own hearts? What if we looked upon these tragic accidents, these horrific things that happen as invitations to ask the Holy Spirit to come and examine our lives? What if we saw these as opportunities to repent from the sin of our lives? What if these atrocities, what if these accidents that we experience remind us of the even just the horrific atrocities that we've committed? Or just the mistaken accidents that, that we've committed against the Lord? What if we could see that? What if the Holy Spirit could show us those things? And then by, you, by those things, then use those as an invitation to repent. What if the death and the carnage that we see around us in this world? What if instead of allowing those things to become uh, things that would just cause fear to come into our lives? What, what, what if we actually stepped back and said, man, Lord, what do you need me to repent of in these moments? As I witness the outcome of a sin-soaked, broken world. I think what's happening here is that Jesus is extending his invitations to repent. Invitation number three is this. Invitation number three in verses six through nine is to engage God's patient cultivation as an opportunity to repent. I'm not a very patient person. You guys know that. I imagine we have many people in our congregation here that are not as patient either. We want things done right now. I'm a goal-oriented, kind of a get-her-done-now, kind of a bottom-line, black-and-white kind of a person. I want to see results. And sometimes I can be driven by this obsession to kind of see, like, a return on the investment that I put in. And in right perspective, I think, and when controlled by the Holy Spirit, like, those kinds of personality traits can be good. But when not being tempered by the gospel which invites me into relationship through Christ, my Father in heaven, I can be like sinfully impatient, which isn't the kind of fruit that the Spirit of God would produce in His children and the life of someone who is repentant. This is why it's important like for me to engage God's patient cultivation as an opportunity and an invitation for continued personal repentance. And the flip side of like this sinful side of me is going back to my story that I mentioned earlier. Like I can either be sinfully impatient with, with asking God to get things done or I, I can be living the way that I used to. And, and it kind of in both of those, that's not the fruit God is necessarily looking for. And as I look back on that season of my life before Christ... One of the things that I see there is even then an opportunity to engage God's patience and not to just take it for granted. Verses 69, we see that God is like a man who had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. And every time he came seeking fruit and he found none, which led him to say to the vine dresser, look, for three years now, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up ground? Like, this is a useless tree. There's no fruit. Cut that thing down. Get it out of here. Jesus is simply warning us. I think, I think this is a huge warning in the text for us. It's warning us that if we continue to take God's patient cultivation of our souls for granted, then, then we really are in danger of being cut down. 
destroyed, tossed into the woodpile for the fire. Notice the fact that God is the one who planted the fig tree. He is the one responsible for the air we breathe. Notice, too, that God comes looking to see if there's any fruit on it. Meaning that God is always carefully examining our lives for fruit of repentance. It's the fruit or proof of salvation. Also notice that God is extremely patient in his cultivation of our lives. As we see that he comes around checking for like three years. Three years, God keeps coming around looking. How's it going? Is there fruit? And some of you that I've known for seven years. Some of you that I've known for like 20 years. My wife and I have been married for... 13 now, we've known each other for almost 20. Oldest daughter is 19 now. Can you look back at the last few years of your life, the last few months, the last few weeks, can you say, I see Jesus doing a work in my life where the fruit of my life is that of repentance. We must engage God's patient cultivation as an invitation and an opportunity for personal repentance. And notice this final implication of God's patient cultivation when the vine dresser responds in a way that I think really reflects and highlights the heart of God when he says, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. And if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. And God is the patient cultivator of our hearts and our lives. He's willing to extend a little bit more time for each of us, for our lives to produce fruit. I think what we see in this text, we see community, we see tragic accidents, we see horrifying atrocities, and I think all these are invitations for us to repent. We don't have time to turn there tonight, but I want you to just mark this down like in the side margin of your Bible. John 15, it's actually in in our PowerPoint, we're not going to have time to stay with it. But John 15, verses 1 through 17, talks about what it looks like to have a Father in heaven who carefully cultivates the life of a person so that the fruit of Christ can be visible. I would just really encourage you guys to maybe go home this evening and spend some time reflecting on that passage. Spend some time reflecting on what you see there. I want to invite our music team to come forward as we begin to wrap up our time. And as we do, I think you'll notice that I'm just not as animated, maybe, as I was last week. It's not that I'm struggling to connect with the text. It's not that I'm struggling to necessarily connect with the notes. I'm really struggling to connect with this topic of repentance. And I think I mentioned that kind of at the beginning as well. Most people say, hey, your wrap-ups are usually the best anyway, so... Just see what the Holy Spirit does. And I think repentance has been something that has um, not, not necessarily eluded me, but just as a topic has been really difficult. I do have a tendency to get distracted by really horrific things that happen. And I, like as a pastor, I get to hear really horrific stories of things that have happened to people. And I think I have a tendency to kind of get weighed down by that. But let me just say, I don't think that I'm any different than you guys. I think you guys, just like me, you see these horrific, these difficult things happening in our world around us. And I think what happens is we have a tendency to get really distracted from Jesus. We have a tendency to kind of get our eyes off of our own hearts and our own lives 
And we begin to be really outward focused, like, how can that person do that? Why did that person say 